Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Tonight's teaching text is from Genesis, Genesis chapter 29, verses 31 through to 35. So if you've got your Bible, I want to encourage you to read it for yourself. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again gave birth to a son and said, The Lord heard that I am unloved, and she has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, At last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne three sons for him. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. This is God's word. Praise God. Uh, what would you do for your family? Like, what, what are the limits for what you would do for your family? Because I think when we ask a question like this, instinctively, people are like, oh, I would take a bullet for my family. I would, I would throw myself in front of a car for your family. It's like, Quite possibly. And, and that's not entirely like a bad idea. Uh, it, it might be more practical. You're like, I would give up a career to raise my child. I would, I would give up my time to care for my ailing parents. You know, there's a, a lot of things you may do for your family. What we rarely stop to ask is what would you not do for your family or what should you not do for your family? Like, would you not do certain things if ultimately it was going to be unhelpful? Would you loan them money if it was going to be unhelpful? Would you let them decide your career or your spouse? Uh, Would you sacrifice your happiness for their personal satisfaction? It's an interesting question, and it's one we don't really think of very much in that line of thoughts. But today, as we kick off Love Ember, another fresh Love Ember, I did not think I'd be announcing a brand new engagement even before we started Love Ember, but I'm expecting five more by the end of the month in Jesus' name. Some of you, you're not even dating yet, but I'm just believing in faith. Pieta knows. She knows who they are. Just ask her. So we're going to have some fun, and, uh, and we're just believing it's, it's fine. Relax. You don't have to get married. You can, but it's fine. Um, but w- what I want to do is start with something a little unusual, and that is talking about boundaries. Because when we discuss and understand boundaries, we actually learn how to love better. It's a topic that's present in everybody's life, and it affects your health and well-being and the well-being of those around you. Now, in the Bible, I could have found many dysfunctional families to choose from, I elected to go to Jacob, which I think is maybe the clearest example of unhealthy boundaries. Jacob was the son of... This is the biblical Jacob, sorry. (laughs) um, Although having pastored Jacob since he was a teenager, sometimes it doesn't pay to call attention to yourself, does it? Mm. Maybe we'll chat after the service. 
Jacob was the son of Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis, and, uh, and he was the younger twin of his brother Esau. And the Bible tells us that they struggled with each other in the womb. That's literally the meaning of Jacob's name, which is an interesting choice of a name, but there you go. As they grew older, their parents took sides. Isaac, the father, loved Esau more. He was a hunter, whereas uh, Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob more. He was, he was just a, a gentler soul in, his, in one way. And this furthered the conflict between them, which became to a head when Jacob started deceiving his brother to rob him of his birthright and then of a blessing from his father. So Jacob leaves to find a wife. He goes to his distant family. And when I say he leaves, he kind of flees before Esau can kill him. Goes to his distant family and falls in love with Rachel. Uh, He works for seven years for Rachel's father Laban. That is a long time to wait for your bride. But then on his wedding night... After they have completed everything that you'd expect on the wedding night, they wake up in the morning and it is not Rachel, it's Rachel's sister Leah. And and then he needs to work another seven years to be allowed to marry Rachel. Now, you may already pick up a few problems as we're going. Laban effectively enslaves Jacob, forcing him and his extended family to end up fleeing the area to strike out on their own. And during this time, Leah and Rachel begin to compete for their husband's affection over this time of marriage and over this time of fleeing uh, by having children. And the more sons they have, the more the uh, perceived sense of blessing from God on their family. So they're having a, a son off, like, the more sons I can have, the more blessed I am. Amen, Lisa Pitt? Come <laughs> The more sons, the better. (laughs) But ultimately, this cycle ends up featuring not just the women, but their handmaids, and ends in competition and favoritism among uh, the sisters. And then it comes down to the next generation. There's so many sons that they are covered in competition and favoritism. Joseph, who was at the time the youngest brother and Rachel's only son, becomes the favorite child of Jacob. His brothers all pick up on it because it's easy to pick up on that stuff, especially when you get a fancy coat and you wear it around and tell everybody you're going to be ruling them someday. And his brothers didn't take that very well. So they threw him in a pit and threatened to kill him and sold him to slavers instead. This is two generations of a family. Two generations. This is what happens when boundaries are misused, abused, or absent in families, to put it lightly. Now, God never intended this to happen. God had blessed Jacob as he left, intended him for him to go out and find his wife. Rachel was right there. They're in love with each other. Everything was right there to be in the plan of God. But people like Laban and deceivers like Jacob cannot help but twist things around. They cannot help but try and control things with their own perceived boundaries. Jacob should have just married Rachel and been done with it, and that would have broken the cycle of deception and conflict and favoritism and would have created a new culture of monogamous love. And God creates a lot of boundaries. If you're new here and you're new to the Christian faith, maybe you're online, and the first thing you're thinking is, yeah, that's what I think of when I think of God, a a guy in the sky who just comes up with a lot of rules. I can understand why you'd think that. But then we've got to think about why godly boundaries exist. And they exist for our benefit and the benefit of all of society. So let me give you one example of a godly boundary, really obvious, especially in Lovember, and that's sex. One of the key questions that often gets asked in the Christian faith is like, is sex really that big a deal? Why do you guys make such a thing about it? It's like, well, it's designed to only be within God's covenant of marriage. And you may think that's a bit restrictive until you think about what happens when it isn't. When it isn't. We abuse it arrogantly through 
Tragedy, prostitution, pornography, abuse of all kinds, sexual slavery, abortion, take your pick. Tragedy comes when we say, I don't trust your boundaries, God, I'm going to do it outside. And then sometimes it doesn't happen that way and we're like, oh, well, I got lucky and it didn't work out that way, so maybe I was right. It's a poor way of looking at things. But when we place sex within the right boundaries, we minimise the risk of harm and we maximise the potential for good. That's why we place it in God's boundaries. That's why we do everything in God's boundaries. The whole purpose of God's boundaries is not to go, let's just see if you'll do it. Like, let's see how obedient you really are. No, the purpose is for our benefit. God, God's God, right? He's eternal. He doesn't need us to jump through hoops. We're going to get to that a little bit later. The boundaries are for us for our holiness, for our growth, for our blessing. Boundaries are not just about playing it safe. Godly boundaries ask the question, what is God's best wisdom for my life? What is God's best wisdom for my life? And if we're not asking this question, we're inventing different boundaries for ourselves. And I can promise you, as good as they seem in the moment, they will not be as good as God's best wisdom. Now, no human being is ever truly alone, whether we believe it or not, whether we feel it or not. We live in an ecosystem. Your actions have consequences. So the old adage, it doesn't matter as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, that's, that's garbage. It's just not true because every action you do affects other people. So say, for example, porn users. Porn users are having their minds rewired to examine uh, the other sex or the sex that they're viewing with their minds in a new way. They're objectifying them. Drug users Okay, they're doing damage to themselves, but ultimately they get desperate for more product. They end up stealing, committing crimes, et cetera, et cetera. There's a ripple effect. Even smokers, they're damaging themselves. Secondhand smoke comes out, and one in every seven people that die from lung cancer dies from secondhand smoke. So we live in an ecosystem. You can't say, I'm just doing this to me. It's my problem. That's not true. That is just not true. And that doesn't even start to take into account the mental and emotional stress of family members and friends when you're going through something like that. So there's three important relationships in your life. They all play out in the story of Jacob. So let's jump into this. The first and most important, well, not most important, but the first relationship you step into in your life is a parent-child relationship or an absent absence of a parent-child relationship. These relationships are totally unique because they begin unequal. Babies totally vulnerable, require parental support to the point of exhaustion. Amen, young parents. The older a child grows, they're too tired to say amen. The older a child grows, the less they need a parent. And eventually, if if all's going well and healthily, the roles actually reverse. And the child grows up and becomes a carer and a nurturer for their aging parent who has loved them. Now, this is arguably the most important relationship we have because it shapes us more profoundly than any other relationship. Your, your relationship with your parents shapes you more than your relationship with your spouse. Not necessarily for longer, but it shapes you more because you are at a formational, foundational age when it happens. You are so deeply influenced. Jacob is shaped by favoritism between his parents, and it drives a sneaky, competitive spirit in him. Uh, for Rachel and Leah, they are shaped by their father's attitude that their prizes to be given away that similarly creates competition and resentment. What has been shaped in you? I wonder. This is what the Bible says about it. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Apparently he was a short talker. (laughs) 
when morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what have you done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Brokenness comes into these relationships straight away. And just like Jacob, we end up passing these broken relationships down to our children if we don't manage what's going on within our hearts, unless we deal with the spiritual and practical ties going on. That's deeply important. That's the first one. Second one is a peer-to-peer relationship. Peer-to-peer is exactly what it sounds. It could be friend-to-friend, co-worker-to-co-worker, sister-to-brother. You're just generally on the same level. Um, A peer's influence is profound because every time you are in a group of peers in particular, one-to-one, not necessarily, but in in a group, one person tends to have a bit more gravity, a bit more social gravity. Have you noticed that when you're in a group? One person, the the conversation, the attention sort of ends up swamping a bit this way. I I have a friend who, when we go into rooms, she just swans off and, and people are just going, oh, she's amazing. I'm like, yes, okay, she's all right, she's fine. And yeah, some of you know who this person is, that's fine. <laughs> she doesn't attend this church. Um, and she is amazing, but it's just, it's just hilarious to watch the gravity that happens when she enters a room. Now, this is why, and particularly if you're a teenager or a young adult, it is stronger for you. That gravity is stronger for you because you spend more time with these people, which is why you've got to consider, are the people I spend time with doing good gravity to me? Like, is there a helpful draw that is going on there? The osmosis that is going on between us, is that helpful? Am I being a source of helpfulness to my peers? You've got to consider that very, very carefully, because the people you surround yourself with will shape you deeply. When Rachel, chapter 30, verse 1, saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. This is what happens in a toxic peer-to-peer relationship when there's competition. You can just call that Instagram at this point. But it's it's the same sort of thing. A spirit of competition gets in us. Rachel was a barren woman whose husband had been co-opted by her unscrupulous father. And her husband loved her deeply, but she envied her sister's capacity to have children. So this made her relationship with Leah much worse, made her sense of self much worse. It ultimately made all her relationships much worse. Finally, the third one is the husband-wife relationship. You can include boyfriend-girlfriend there if you want, partners. I don't really mind what label you use, but the husband-wife one is the long-term one. The key is that the romantic relationship is uniquely different from the peer-to-peer relationship, even though hopefully it is indeed between peers. Now, listen to the way that a, a wife can be affected by a husband. Chapter 29, verse 32, Leah conceived gave birth to a son and named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. Now that seems a bit ridiculous, but I've been a youth pastor and a young adult pastor. And I can tell you, a lot of people think that way in relationships. Like, surely if I do this, my boyfriend will love me. Or surely if if I'm hanging around forever, this girl will like me. Surely if I slave away and serve in a way that actually I'm not comfortable with and all my family tell me is a terrible idea, they will like me. The amount of things we will do in an unhealthy way to serve others, there's really no end to it. Leah was the other way around. She was shoved into this marriage as a sham, dumped onto a husband who didn't want her. She had kids, but she wanted them to earn her husband's love, but love doesn't work that way. So what does all this have to do with boundaries? Well, it's simply this. Boundaries exist so that we know who we are and who we are not. Let me say that again. Boundaries exist so that we know, so that you know who you are and who you are not. You are made to be someone. You are not made to be anyone else. 
anyone else. They exist to protect us from the lies we begin to believe about ourselves. So let me explain. I'm, I've got there's four boundaries. And Tim, can I just get you to bring uh, my whiteboard up here? You know it's a big day. <laughs> Thank you. I, I have a reputation for obsession for my whiteboard, and it's based on reality. So this is upside down. like uh, Mr. Squiggle. All right. There, there are four kinds of relationships we put in place in our lives, right? And I want to depict them here visually. I think it would be helpful for you. The first is the boundary of independence. This is a relational boundary. Now, independence is a myth, but if you wanted to, you could basically depict it like this. Two different circles separate from one another. It's an idea we believe about ourselves that we're separate from others. You're not. You can be doing rural ministry in a placement and feel alone. You're not truly alone. There is a relational network around you. You're in an ecosystem. And this myth causes damage to many people through its naivety. The second is the boundary of dependence. Dependence, you could depict more like this. Now, dependence is a parasitic relationship. It's, sometimes it's necessary, like with very young children or ailing parents or somebody with a significant disability. But when a relationship involves an unnecessary dependence, there's necessary dependence, an unnecessary dependence, this means it has ceased to be a relationship between equals. And that causes damage to both parties. The third is the boundary of codependence. And I'll just draw it like that to give you the impression that it's as close as possible. Now, codependence is an equal relationship between two people, but it's a relationship that attempts to exist effectively outside of the outside world. Like they're in a little bunker, and you know what this looks like. These people are kind of gross, right? They're totally obsessed with each other, and they fail to recognize there is a world outside of them. Now, codependence, codependence features the same neglect of the independent mind for other people, except within the relationship itself, in which case there is too much focus. Now, why are these relationship boundaries damaging? I'll tell you. Because a healthy relationship involves personal responsibility, emotional vulnerability, and a strong sense of identity. Responsibility, vulnerability, identity. Responsibility is a willingness to own your actions, that who we are and what we do affects others. Vulnerability is a willingness to be open to others and knowing that we are always shaped by others and shaping others. Identity is having a strong sense of self. We're not designed to find ourselves in the opinions and demands of others. Now, here's how that works in these relationships. Independent people have high personal responsibility because they believe that they don't need anyone, nobody needs them, it's all about them. But they have a low vulnerability because they have no capacity to be emotionally honest with other people. Your best case scenario is an independent person might have no filter and dump all their emotions on somebody, but that's equally unhelpful, just in a different way. They have a high sense of identity, sort of, because they have an unwillingness to be shaped by others. Dependent people have a low responsibility because they're putting all their attention, all their affection on the person that they're, they're hanging off of desperately. But they have a high vulnerability usually way too high, in that they're opening themselves up in every way to this other person who usually is not opening themselves up in the same way to them. But they have very poor responsibility, like I said. Um, and they have a low sense of identity, because all their identity is based upon what this person thinks about them. And codependent people, they perceive they have high responsibility and high vulnerability, but only to each other. 
only to each other. To everyone else in the outside world, they have very poor responsibility and probably poor vulnerability as well. And because of the nature of their relationship, they have a poor sense of identity because it's totally linked with the other person. Now, these are obviously not great ways to have relationships. Amen? Somebody? <laughs> Good. <laughs> these are set up to hurt yourself and other people. Don't do them. Like, if you're taking photos, great, but don't then go, okay, which one do I want? None of them. None of them is the answer. I'm going to get to that. So what is the wise way to operate in relationships? Well, the wise way is godly differentiation. Differentiation involves remaining connected to people and yet not having your emotions or behaviors determined by them. No one controls how you react, how you live, where you put your affections. So you have healthy relationships, but you are not defined by them. Differentiated relationships feature high responsibility. You are personally responsible for your own behavior, high vulnerability, because you're emotionally open enough to let people be appropriately close to you, and a high sense of identity, because your behaviors and emotions are not defined by the opinions or demands of others. So this would be more like your classic Venn diagram. Clear sense of personal identity with a clear sense of unity in the middle. That is godly differentiation. This is what Pete Scazzaro says about it. Our primary task, like Jesus, is to calmly differentiate our true self from the demands and voices around us so then we can discern the vision, pace, and mission that the Father has uniquely given us. Now, this is really important, and it's actually really important if you're dating because the other relationships, parent-child in particular, it, ex it just exists. Like You've got to work out how to navigate it. But the other relationships with peers and dating, and same with spouses. If you've got a spouse, you've got a spouse. You've got to work out how to navigate it and make it healthy. But the other relationships, you have much more agency of whether you should or should not be in them. So the parent-child relationship, children must understand their role is not to become their parents, and parents must understand that their role is not to create a little version of them, but to slowly give more and more responsibility and freedom, terrifying as that is, and it is, to allow your child to become the person God has uniquely shaped them to be. In a peer-to-peer -peer relationship, we've got to understand that we're influenced by those around us, so we've got to be very thoughtful about who we allow to have access to us, and very thoughtful about how we behave around others. And I was just going to say, like, just a little note here. Sometimes what we do is we're like, I don't want to be ungodly, that's my bar. And that's good, don't do that. I don't think that's the bar, guys. I think that's the floor like the absolute floor. What can you do to elevate the people you're around, to lift the tide for everybody? The other thing, though, is that as you are being the influence in their lives, remember that you're an influence in their lives. You are not the savior of their life. No matter what they are going through, you cannot be solely responsible for saving them. You can love them, help them, serve them, care for them. But the boundaries exist for a reason. There's some space there where there will be crossover, but there's also space to go, this is where I am and you are, and I must know where those boundaries are because otherwise it gets to this or to this, and then we're in a lot of trouble because I have been put then in this position of being the savior for this person, and that will crush you and it will crush them. So word of warning there. And in the husband-wife relationship, we devote ourselves to each other in loving service, but we do not become one another. We still have distinct personalities. You are not one identity, one flesh, not one person, not one identity. True love preserves freedom while voluntarily serving the other. That's the aim 
of true love. Every relationship you're in is designed to be one of godly differentiation. Every relationship. And it's one where you know who you are. It's one where boundaries are primarily set by God's moral law, like of what you just should do in life, but then are also set by your wisdom. What is wise for me in this relationship? This overlap will look different for different people. Some will have more, some will have less. For some people, you need to go, actually, I've mucked this up. There's too much overlap. I need to get actually a little bit closer to this with this one person. Not with everybody, but with a person. I may need to separate a little bit. Now, the gaps on the left and right are critical because that is where identity, personal identity and personal responsibility live. But the overlap in the middle is also critical. That's where the relationship it is. That's where permitted crossing of boundaries is. To say this is where we together are united in this relationship, right? Now, let me explain what is in this gap. Pain, tension, frustration, conflict, everything that annoys you about another human being is in this gap because it affects you in a relationship. If it doesn't affect you in a relationship, you shouldn't be letting it annoy you. Just a note about the internet. (laughs) But also in that gap is love, affection, service, intimacy, joy, all the intangible relational parts that make life wonderful. Now, the weirdest thing about Jacob's story is that the person in his family who first shows godly differentiation is Esau. Listen to this. Jacob returns home from his exile, fearful for his life. He's trying to buy Esau off with gifts. And Esau's response is this. Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And then they wept together. And Esau said, what do you mean by this whole procession uh, I've met? And Jacob says, "To, to find favor with you, my Lord, he answered. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have. Esau has learned something while he's been away from Jacob. He learned who he was in those years. He doesn't hold Jacob responsible for the hurt of the past, which was real, real hurt caused in relationship. But Esau said, I will not let that hurt cause here define me. This is real here, but it is not as big or as important as this. So this can remain with my brother and I will forgive the hurt. That is a word for some people here. You need to forgive some hurt. Now, that doesn't mean you can't move slightly away and have a smaller Venn diagram. Maybe you come back a bit, maybe you go. But forgiveness is so critical in this. But beautifully, Jacob had learned differentiation too. He feared for his life, not for Esau's approval. How did he learn this? Because there's a fourth kind of relationship. And that is the God-human relationship. It is not like any of the other relationships at all. It's like a parent-child relationship and that we're totally dependent on God, but also it's like a peer-to-peer in that Jesus, through his great and generous love, doesn't call us servants but friends. And then at the same time, it somehow has the intimacy and beauty of a husband-wife relationship, the, the depth of vulnerability and, and love coming towards us and the filling of the Holy Spirit within us. So the God-human relationship is more like that. In God and His enormity, we are meant to be fully contained, but we are fully differentiated. We're held within His love because God, in His great love, gives us freedom. If we want to, we can go. You can do whatever you like. 
but you'll find actually more identity, actually more vulnerability, and you'll be given a sense of divine responsibility in the arms of God the Father. That's the human God relationship. It is extraordinary. This relationship bears elements of all the other types of boundaries because God designed us to be both designed and dependent and differentiated all at once. So the night before Jacob meets Esau, he sends his family on ahead and band, you guys can come back up. He's left alone. And that night he has this spiritual, physical altercation and theologians have wrestled for years about exactly what this means because Jacob himself was wrestling, wrestling with God. And he's wrestling with this mystery man for him until daybreak, refusing to let go and demanding a blessing because apparently Jacob's still going to Jacob. I'm going to hold and demand a blessing. This is, he's crossing boundaries into someone else's personal space and refusing to let go even when the other person says, let go of me, which is what happens. Some of you know people like that. But in this case, the mystery man is God. He allows himself to be held close by Jacob, even in the wrestle an uncomfortable, unpleasant wrestle. He shows his capability by dislocating Jacob's hip with a touch. He didn't have to wrestle him all night. He could have let him go at any time. But he also willingly blesses Jacob at his demand because he's overflowing the blessing. And the blessing of God is not about finance. It's about identity. See, Jacob ceases to be the cunning, grasping, overreaching second son. Instead, God says, I'm going to rename you Israel which means the one who has struggled with God and has overcome. And this is the case for everyone here. Everyone in your relationships, we know struggle. And a big part of that is because we don't know ourselves and we don't know God. And we do boundaries so badly, we ignore his wise boundaries. We set our own instead. He's given us a wise boundary. Jacob overcomes God. How? By holding him close and begging for blessing. That's how we overcome in our relationship with God too. Hold him close, beg for blessing. But we don't have to do that because in Jesus, we already have this. See, Jesus is, is God on earth. God held us close. He crossed the uncrossable boundary from heaven to earth. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. He gave us his blessing by being resurrected from the grave and giving to us the gift of joining him in resurrection, making a way for us to cross that impossible boundary between earth and heaven forever. That's what God does. The one who knows how to set boundaries is the only one who can say, well, I guess I've got to cross those boundaries in order to bring you back into my loving arms. Only God can engineer a relationship that is totally dependent and totally distinct. And when you step into a relationship with God, you do not lose your identity. You discover it. And what you find is revealed within the presence of God. All the things you've been trying to hide, all your brokenness, all your pain is shown to you. You're like, oh, I don't want that. Well, that's vulnerability. Sorry. And then he says, hey, I've actually got a bit of work for you to do in that. It's like, I, 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 well, I don't, I don't want to deal with it. It's like, I know you don't want to, but if you do, I can heal you. If you look at your vulnerable spaces, your brokenness within my presence, within the arms of my love, I will show you the truth about yourself, but you'll be so fully loved and you'll know that, that the truth will set you free. It won't be a burden. And so God shows us the truth about ourselves and we are way more broken than we even imagined. 
But in his love, in that vulnerability, he sets us free. And he says, actually, I don't just have work for you to do on you. I want to do some work through you for the whole world. See, your identity, and we're like, well, is that what my identity is to be a missionary? Like I need to go to be an open doors missionary? No, 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 no. Your identity is to be a daughter, a son, a child who says, oh, my understanding of myself is defined not by the fact that I'm alone or dependent on someone else or codependent or even differentiated well with others, but simply that God loves me despite that He knows me. See, the gospel, friends, is this. You are more sinful and flawed and broken than you could ever believe. But simultaneously, you are even more loved and cherished by God than you could possibly imagine. That is what God has done for us. So listen, your child will not fulfill you. They will not become you. You can't be your friend's saviour. They can't be yours. Your husband and wife will not make you happy. Sometimes, like I love my wife, but she is not my salvation. She is not my identity. And you cannot be that for them. And the more you try, the worse it will get. And you're most definitely not God. And neither am I. So if you want a healthy, loving life, it's time to embrace godly boundaries. And what I believe God is asking us tonight as we come to a close of the service and the band is going to briefly play some music and a bit of a reprise while we respond is I want to give people a chance to respond because talking about boundaries brings up a number of things in us. It brings up the times that we have stuffed up these boundaries. Maybe it's as simple as you're like, oh man, I, I, I slept with somebody when I was a teenager and I just, I feel embarrassed. I feel ashamed. And God's here to say, well, Thanks for acknowledging that that's true, but my love, my arms, my hope for you is way bigger than any shame you're carrying. No matter what that's about, just come to me, let me work on it. Or maybe it's much grimmer. Somebody has crossed your boundaries in a way that has changed you irrevocably. Maybe it's something as significant as abuse, which is awful. But God is just quietly, gently saying, you need to release that from you you need to forgive them not because they are worthy of forgiveness but because you are holding it on yourself like a weight and it's dragging you down we don't forgive because somebody deserves to be set free none of us that have that we forgive because we all need to be set free 